Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we take a look at how lobbyists, lawyers, and advocacy groups have influenced the nation's devastating opioid addiction crisis. This is the Influence Watch podcast. On Tuesday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that his city was suing eight manufacturers and distributors of prescription painkillers for costs New York has incurred for dealing with the country's opioid addiction crisis. New York City isn't the first government to sue drug makers for allegedly causing the crisis. The state of Ohio and city of Everett, Washington have also done so. Laying aside the left-wing politician's publicity stunt for the moment, it's impossible to see drug overdoses, which killed an estimated 64,000 Americans in 2016, as anything but a major social problem. The Trump administration has officially declared opioid addiction a public health crisis, which opened up some limited federal funds for relief. In December of last year, Fairfax County, Virginia, a suburb of the nation's capital that is the second richest county in the United States, saw eight overdose deaths in nine days. Despite the efforts being made, the crisis continues. It involves numerous interrelated public policy issues, and behind it are influencers, politicians, and advocates who, although they may sometimes have had the best of intentions, have nonetheless contributed to the problem and are now stuck trying to fix it. Uh, Mike, let's begin with uh, Mayor de Blasio's lawsuit in New York City. So what, whatever you think about, about Bill de Blasio, uh, obviously he's a very far left guy. His administration is propped up by a bunch of the far left hangers on groups. Uh, and unions. And in starting with and many working for the uh, the labor unions, uh, on this issue, this this is not this is not really a crazy a crazy thing. Uh, the uh, the the lawsuit in Ohio was moved by uh, State Attorney General Mike DeWine, who's a Republican. Uh, now, some reasonable question among legal observers whether there's a legal there there whether uh, whether there's actually a legal cause of action um, against the the manufacturers distributors of uh, of opioid painkillers in the mid 2000s they actually did reach a settlement with Purdue Pharmaceuticals because they had done some some sleazy some sleazy marketing stuff um, but that was dealt with then. Uh, so there's some question as to whether they, there's legal merit here. Uh, but Mayor de Blasio looking for a way to do something, uh, you know, the opioid crisis on Staten Island in particular, uh, is almost apocalyptically bad. Uh, hardly crazy. Well, uh, that said, the mayor probably didn't come up with the lawsuit idea on his own. There's a history uh, of sorts, isn't there, of this kind of governmental lawsuit against a particular uh, sector of business. Uh, one of the obvious ones uh, that come to my mind is the tobacco litigation so prominent in the 90s. Uh, yeah, tobacco and asbestos. Uh, the problem with the way that those lawsuits were set up, especially the tobacco lawsuit, um, the tobacco master settlement, uh, is that a, one, a lot of the money ended up going to Trial lawyers, some of whom are real sleazeballs. Uh, Dickie Scruggs was a you know, famous lawyer who was one of the 
uh, partners in the law firm that worked with the state of Mississippi on the tobacco litigation. Uh, he would later go to prison for bribing a judge. Yes, and we should point out that he was the brother-in-law of uh, then-Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, uh, which no doubt increased his uh, capacity to influence such in, things. In, in, increase, increased his political clout and may have helped him think that he was going to get away with things like bribing a judge. <laughs> yes, and, and I think we should also, given our own history and, uh, and uh, what InfluenceWatch.org covers thoroughly, uh, observe that uh, two groups that, that a lot of Americans forget are massive players in politics are uh, the labor unions, which you mentioned earlier, who pretty much are responsible for Bill de Blasio having his current job, for that matter, having the nomination. But in the case of Dickie Scruggs, the, uh, brings to mind the other big group often forgotten, and that's the, uh, the tort bar, or in crude layman's terms, the ambulance chasers. Uh, and lawsuits like this where you have, you know, when governments try to sue a big chunk of uh, business um, to have the golden egg laid by that goose, they typically involve with themselves outside lawyers, not just their own attorneys general, uh, but outside, outside lawyers like Dickie Scruggs' firm, um, and there's a division of spoils, and those uh, tort lawyers then uh, are often found to be among the most uh, prominent and uh, generous of contributors to uh, the politicians involved. Absolutely. And there's also a, if I can add specific to the tobacco settlement, there's another kind of sideline issue. And that's that once the, if one of these uh, litigation proceedings looks like it's going to go bad for the industry, the industry settles and then the industry can make a deal so that the incumbent companies, the companies that are actually making the deal, uh, can actually come out, come out uh, pretty. Can actually come out pretty well. Uh, the uh, you know R.J. Reynolds and what was then Philip Morris, what is now Altria Group, uh, may basically the way the master settlement is structured gave them a near monopoly on what remains of the tobacco market in the United States. They also no longer advertise against each other, which saves them scads of money. Uh, you know, yeah, okay, they had to pay a bunch of money to these states and to that. Then the trial lawyer skimmed off a bunch, but there's also some crony capitalism involved. Yes. Yeah, so for those of for, for any listener or viewer who is excited at the thought of hurting big companies, remember that when you hurt big companies by using big government, you usually end up with a big government. Uh, even more controlled by the big companies that you're trying to the, fight. The big, the big company, the big companies have really good lawyers, and they can figure out a way to make the big company gain an advantage, even if it's losing scads of money in the process. Yes, uh, and eliminate competition. And uh, by eliminating competition. Yes. Well, let's talk a bit about the the scale of the situation. Uh, this opioid uh, crisis, you know, many of the crises bruited about in in public policy talks are not really uh, such crises and don't have um, uh, nearly as, as gruesome a fallout as one would be led to believe uh, by listening, but this may, actually, this may actually be a real crisis. I would drop the maybe, I would say is. Uh, we are losing more than a Vietnam War's worth of dead uh, to drug overdoses every year uh, at the current rate. Uh, in 2015 and 2016, so many people died from drug overdoses that combined with the general um, 
the general way of the world and the general way of life in the United States, uh, that American life expectancy actually declined uh, for the first time, you know, two years for the first time since I believe the end of World War II. This is similar, reminds me of uh, one way that you knew just how messed up Russia was, uh, was that while all the rest of the developed world had increasing life expectancies, Russia, uh, both under communism and then after, uh, ma mainly because it's the leading alcohol, uh, alcohol, alcoholism, <laughs> alcoholism country, thank you, uh, had declining life expectancy. You have to have a very screwed up country to have declining life expectancy. Right. And to get an idea of, you know, how it may be affecting the rest of American life and our politics, uh, the, the decline in life expectancy was contained among uh, Anglos, among white Americans. Uh, and it is not unreasonable to suggest that part of the reason that there was so much disruption in, in our politics in 2015 and 2016 had to do with the fact that people were literally dying, um, that people and people in these in these communities were literally dying. Uh, when uh, President uh, President Donald Trump in his uh, inauguration speech is talking about American carnage, this may not be what he is talking about, but this is what people are hearing. Um, How about another statistic or two uh, to give an? Ex uh, listeners an understanding of the scope of what we're talking about. So to get an idea of how many people are currently believed to be hooked on opioids and other, uh, and other drugs, uh, the CDC estimates that over 2 million people are hooked on prescription painkillers in a, the, in a grand total, maybe up to 2.5 two million uh, are hooked on any opioid. Uh, which would which, include the street drugs which, as well. Wait, as yeah, which includes the street drugs, and we'll get to the street drugs in a moment. So uh, that's an, that, and the street drugs are another part of the problem. But that obviously, uh, people who make it hooked on prescription drugs, then they're cut off for one reason or another, uh, or they can't afford them, uh, and that uh, leaves them uh, then willing to try the street drugs, which bring new problems. Right, and the street drugs are getting worse. Uh, you know, it used to be, you know, her heroin is a strong drug that will kill you if you. Be if you become addicted, it will kill you over time. Then you have fentanyl and carfentanil, which are stronger opioid derivatives that will often kill you by an immediate overdose. And, you know, the street drug dealers, the street drug cocktail mixers, part of the way the drug market operates. Uh, is that the street drug manufacturers actually, if somebody ODs on their stuff, all the junkies want the stuff that o made the guy OD, made the guy overdose, because they're chasing the, they're chasing the high that they got the first time, which you never get, uh, and that the addition of these even stronger opioids to an already existing heroin market has just increased the overdose rate ridiculously. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier that the Trump administration has declared a public health emergency. That's actually a technical uh, government right, that's term. Right, that's a legal, that's a, there's a legal definition of what a public health emergency is. So what difference has that made? Uh, mostly semantic, mostly 
just a rhetorical, this is a problem. Uh, the amount of money in the public health, uh, public health services, public health emergency fund as of October, as of last October, was $57,000. Uh, it's, it's not a big pot of money. Uh, there was some discussion about declaring it a national emergency, uh, like a major hurricane. Uh, the problem is that the law that is written to de define a national emergency doesn't really apply to a slowly developing and chronic situation like we have with the opioid addiction explosion in the past couple of years. Yep. Uh, uh, I would say that, uh, and, and the national emergency, it's, it's again, the, one of the problems with government and it's uh, the, the great inefficiencies involved are, uh, I have some friends who were involved in uh, the government right after the Katrina hurricane hit. And they had the same kinds of issues where things were desperately needed, but the existing laws, which govern how you can give money away and to whom and for what purposes and this, that, and the other, because we are a nation of laws, sort of, at least, uh, hamstrung all kinds of efforts. Because even when you have a, a better fit between the law and the crisis, um, government still has a very hard time uh, walking and chewing gum. Uh, well, and good luck getting Congress to appropriate money for anything. <laughs> yes, the uh, uh, well, uh, opioid addicts probably don't vote, uh, <laughs> so that would lessen the the appeal to politicians. But um, there is uh, you, you talked about uh, struggling communities. Um, there is evidence, of course, that the opioid crisis is uh, connected to other long term. Uh, problems in certain communities and, and parts of American society. Can you tell us a bit about that? So since the 2008 finan the financial crisis and, and global recession, a lot of people, specifically men, have dropped out of the labor force. They are no longer working. They are no longer seeking work. And what some research has found, uh, former Obama administration, I think he was chairman of Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Kruger, uh, he estimated or he, he found that approximately half of those men who have dropped out of the labor force are on pain medication and take pain medication daily. Uh, now, many of these people may be genuinely disabled, may be genuinely hurt. You know, genuinely hurt. Yeah, they may have worked in places they, like coal mines and steel plants. Coal mines, and the steel rest. mills, places where you're, you know, bent over and on your feet all day and now it hurts. Uh, but some of these people probably are not. Uh, some of these people are probably in that category of, of uh, drug abusers who may have started on on uh, maybe even a legitimately prescribed pain medication or they may have taken pain medication from somebody they knew that they weren't supposed to uh, and have become addicted and are now servicing an addiction. Yeah, one suspects that the, the best place uh, to have a better understanding of that is probably not economists and their regression analyses, but uh, J.D. Vance, uh, the brilliant author of uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which really paints a portrait of the kinds of yeah, communities of, of how, that we're talking of, about. Of his, yeah, of his, of his family and their dealings with all sorts of drug addictions. Um, yes, and in, in uh, economically distressed areas, I think, right. as in, we say. In, in, the, in places like West Virginia, Southern Ohio, uh, Eastern Kentucky, a lot of, uh, 
a lot of places where the smart, you know, the the smart go-getters have left for better opportunities. The workaday jobs that used to give a middle-class existence have gone away for whatever reason, uh, leaving behind people who are subsisting on SSDI uh, disability insurance. Yeah, Social Security disability insurance. Uh, yeah. People who are subsisting on food stamps, you know, a lot of the poor, a lot of the poorest counties uh, in the United States are in this region just because there is kind of no economic activity that has survived. Yes. Well, let's uh, let's go to our specialty, which is the the influencers involved in the issue and the connections uh, between them. There's a lot of issues here at stake, isn't there? But let's start with the. Um, uh, let's start with what really is the backbone for lawsuits by people like Mayor de Blasio, uh, and that is uh, the, cl- the, the claims against the pharmaceutical companies. So the theory behind holding the pharmaceutical companies li- liable or ultimately accountable as the cause of the crisis is that they encouraged through either deceptive marketing, uh, re- kind of ignoring the risks of addiction, ignoring the risks of overdose, encouraged physicians to write lots of prescriptions for lots of opioids that they probably shouldn't have. Uh, that's the theory, at least. That, that's, that's the theory. The major drug maker lobby, just to kind of get an idea of who the player is here, um, is the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, better known as Pharma. Uh, because of the industry's size and influence in all, all areas of healthcare policy, uh, not just you know drug prescriptions and drug approvals and FDA stuff, Food and Drug Administration is responsible for approving drugs for sale, um, but also the structure of the healthcare system, health insurance reform, what to do about Obamacare. Pharma is always one of the major lobbying spenders in Washington D.C. in uh, the fourth quarter of 2017, they spent over six. They spent roughly six million dollars, uh, and came sixth overall among spenders, uh, and their fifth if you combine the Chamber of Commerce itself with one of its uh, ancillary groups. Yes, and just I can't resist an aside, which is beating them out in that quarter for spending uh, was one of George Soros's uh, groups which actually spent more money lobbying than the pharma trade group of notoriety. And that's probably a good topic for uh, a future episode. We will come to that at a future date. Uh, Now, drug makers have also funded uh, other influencer groups, too. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So one of the one of the classic strategies to convince Washington that you're not just some, you know, sleazy business, but that you're actually represent, you know, people who vote is to support a corporation or a labor union or any entity that is a special interest group to fund advocacy organizations that are not obviously them. So if you're a drug maker, you give money to the International Pain Foundation or the American Cancer Society Action Network, uh, American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, or the American Academy of Pain Management. And then these people come out and they, they talk to their congressmen or their state legislature, state legislators and say, no, 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 you can't restrict the amount of opioid prescriptions or you can't, you know, or you should have Medicare uh, 
use pain management as a uh, as part of the you know part of the questionnaires that hospitals uh, are required to give to Medicare patients, so that Medicare can decide whether the hospital is doing a good job or not, and whether they should get paid. Um, so, what the uh, what the drug makers did was they funded these groups. They funded you know American Cancer Society, Cancer Action Network. American Academy of Pain Management, International Pain Foundation, some other nonprofits. And then these groups did advocacy that supported the drug maker's desire to sell more opioid painkillers. Or uh, put another way, to have, to have fewer regulations and reporting requirements and the rest uh, on such things. Um, well, uh, so there's at least there's a plausible case, uh, but not a, a dead certain case, I, su- I suppose, about this. But one thing, of course, uh, when we talk about, again, government uh, getting involved in things is there are always unintended consequences, are there not? So um, t- uh, tell us a bit about the unexpected or undesired uh, byproducts of uh, the greater regulations that have, despite pharma and its friends' efforts, uh, grown in recent years. So, going back to twenty in twenty ten, a new formulation of uh, I think it was OxyContin, which is one of the major opioid painkillers prescription uh, yeah. prescription mm-hmm. prescription opioid painkillers uh, was brought out that was more tamper resistant. So you couldn't you know cut it and I think it was crush it. Uh, yeah, you could you couldn't you couldn't crush it, divide it up, sell it, uh, and then sell it to people who will abuse it. Uh, so that took some of the illicit uh, illicit oxy illicit prescription painkiller out of the illicit pres- prescription painkiller market, and then throughout the end of the twenty throughout the mid twenty tens, as this opioid crisis was as painkiller abuse more so than the what we now think of as the opioid crisis. But as painkiller abuse emerged as a problem, uh, the government tightened the regulations on how much you could prescribe at any one time. The theory being that if you cut the supply of of opioid painkillers, prescription opioid painkillers, going into the world, that fewer teenagers are going to sneak into their parents' uh, medicine cabinets and steal their Vicodin. You know, fewer... uh, People in West Virginia who are on disability because they threw out their hip when they were in the coal mine, uh, and are you know maybe cutting some cutting a couple pills uh, and smashing them up and selling them on the side illegally for a bit of spending money, so that that doesn't happen. Uh, the unpleasant byproduct, one of the unpleasant byproducts of this, is that the people who are already hooked start looking for alternatives. And the alternative that was supplied to them by transnational, international uh, uh, criminal organizations was heroin and the super dangerous novel opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil. And whereas someone on prescription painkillers may have a an addiction but may not be killing themselves, may, may not be overdosing, uh, put somebody on fentanyl or carfentanil, and they are overdosing, and that become you know, again, a prescription painkiller addiction is bad. A opioid addiction that leads you to use fentanyl or carfentanil is even worse. Yeah. 
Then there, on the flip side of things, of course, um, there are the people who genuinely have very serious chronic pain uh, or end-of-life uh, yeah, pain, or... and uh, the regulations have, that were intended to uh, deal with abusers um, hit just as hard against legitimate uh, uh, pain. Right. Right. The the people who the people who need painkillers again because it's and uh, you know they're coming to the end of their lives. They are, or they just have chronic pain. Now there's some question in the medical literature about whether opioid whether opioids are the best treatment for that, and we'll actually get to some of that at the end of our conversation today. Uh, but the fact of the kind of the facts of where medical science and pharmaceutical science are right now is that generally they have been prescribed opioids. That's generally what's available. And then the government comes along and says, no, 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 you can't have, uh, you can't have it because uh, we're afraid that the prescription painkillers will get out into the, into the general public among people who aren't supposed to have them. And then all of a sudden you can't, you, you don't have a sufficiency of pills to treat your, your pain. Uh, yeah. Well, now to get to, uh, to, to block, pull back uh, into the history of this a bit, um, the, uh, we talk now about the opioid crisis back in the 90s. There was a talk about uh, insufficient uh, medical attention to pain. Um, and some important influencers like the large hospital chains and even the federal uh, Veterans Administration system uh, responded to this in ways that have that led into some of the current problems. Can you t uh, can you review a little of the history for us? Sure. So the American Pain Society, which is an association of the pain of pain management physicians, that was very active in the 1990s and funded in part by Purdue Pharmaceutical, which is an opioid painkiller manufacturer. Uh, they promoted this idea of pain as the fifth vital sign, uh, which is why when, at least until very, very recently, if you went to the doctor with any sort of complaint, the doctor would ask, you know, are you hurting today? Are you in pain today? If you said yes, scale of one to 10. Uh, and then the doctor would be expected to treat your, your pain. So let's say, uh, you know, I fall, fell off my bicycle, broke my wrist. Uh, you know, in addition to setting setting my wrist in a, in, in a cast, you know, I would be asked, you know, how much pain are you in? And I would then have to, because you can't, you know, short of having like electrodes hooked up to somebody's brain, you can't determine objectively how much pain someone is in. Uh, you know, I've never broken a bone in my life before, so I'd probably say something pretty high, like a seven or an eight. Uh, and, you know, that could be enough in some places to get me, you know, Percocet or some, you know, very strong, potentially opioid painkiller. Uh, now, now, more recently, of course, a different influencer, the American Medical Association, uh, has reversed course somewhat on this. Is that right? Right. In 2016, it, as, the opioid, as the opioid crisis became a crisis, uh, the American Medical Association, which is the biggest sort of trade and professional association of doctors uh, and is extremely powerful because it controls the copyright to doctors' medical billing codes, uh, 
just why we, it's really through the control of the billing codes more so than their membership that that the AMA leverages its influence. Um, they their their national assembly uh, national representative assembly uh, voted that voted against treating pain as this fifth vital sign. Yep. The um, now other important influencers uh, have played a role too. Uh, such as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is a big chunk of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. This is this is kind of a classic case of the federal government functioning as an influencer, uh, because when the government makes a regulation, it affects how all the other players deal with an issue. So what Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services did was they have a form that they give that they give to patients who to rate hospitals and doctors treatment and in 2006 what centers for medicare and medicaid services added to that was a question about how well the hospital dealt with your pain and this led hospitals and doctors whose payment is in part based on these surveys to be more aggressive in treating pain, and the standard treatment for pain is painkillers, many of which are opioids. Uh, and then uh, more recently, you have the president's, another governmental uh, entity, the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, uh, and it got into the act. Right. So in shortly after he got into office, President Trump uh, convened this, this commission, uh, chaired by then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, that was to look into the causes and what to do about the opioid crisis. And in one of its determinations of the cause, uh, the the commission decide the commission found that this idea of pain as a fifth vital sign was a contributing cause to the crisis and should end. Uh, they uh, they held uh, in. Then Governor Christie's letter to the president, he said uh, it was a, quote, a core cause of the culture of overprescription in this country that led to the current health crisis. Uh, But uh, having said that, we have been stressing uh, to a great extent today, we've been talking about doctors and uh, and medical groups and government health agencies. Um, But as we mentioned uh, earlier with the case of J.D. Vance and his famous book, Hillbilly Elegy, um, this really does involve more than just the health sector uh, of America, doesn't it? The health sector can be thought of as the supply side, but there is a demand side. Uh, The demand side is the sort of general social dysfunction, especially in places, I mean, that we've been talking about, uh, Southern Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky uh, the mountain, the mountain regions of Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Arkansas. Um, what we're observing is as economic opportunity has gone away, as the young and ambitious have left to major cities, the people left behind are experiencing what. Uh, economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton are calling deaths of despair. Uh, the um, 
you know, the amount of economic opportunity available to a middle-aged, not particularly well-educated man uh, in these places is basically nil. And because they don't have a social um, a social framework, the, one of the big risk factors for dying of overdose is that you're divorced or you've never been married. Uh, if you are married or widowed, much your your risk is much less. Uh, so the the collapse of the family, which has been spoken about at this point for about half a decade. Uh, oh, you mean, you this, mean half a century? Yeah, sorry, half a century, not half a decade. <laughs> Moynihan, the Moynihan Report yes. was in the late 60s, no, 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 if I no, recall I meant, correctly. <laughs> sorry about that. Misspoke. Half a century, uh, for at least half a century, um, is is deeply connected with this. And I have to say, I can't resist pointing out, as, as, as a member of the um, uh, cis-heteropatriarchy here, um, I can't resist mentioning that uh, the precisely the, the middle-aged, uh, divorced, or never-married man in West Virginia that you're talking about uh, is not dripping with white privilege. If if you're wondering if you're if you're a progressive and you're wondering why some people dismiss the notion of of privilege, and I actually don't. I think there's some. I think there is some blessing. I think there is a an interpretation of that that has some merit. Not the way that then the left run you know grabs it by the grabs it by the scruff of its neck and runs it you know 50 yards to the left. But you know, there's a nugget of there's a nugget of truth growing in there. But if you wonder why some people are dismissing it out of hand, uh, the notion that there is this massive public health crisis that nobody really, I mean, I'll speak from personal, you know, from my personal experience. I consider myself a fairly close observer of uh, of of America. I read, you know, I read magazines. I read the newspaper. I read, uh, you know, I read all the wire services on Twitter. And until, interestingly, it was then Governor Chris Christie gave a big speech in the 2015, in 2015 in anticipation of the presidential primaries, I had absolutely no idea as an inside the beltway elite that this was going on, that there was any, that there was this uh, crisis of drug addiction rocking suburban and rural America. Um, and you know one of the you know one of the complaints that lefty that lefties make is that you know well hold on a minute you know when drugs were ravaging the inner cities and the victims were not Anglo middle aged men uh, you know you guys didn't care as much and I'm sitting here going no people were well aware of what was going on and it wasn't until very, very recently that we were even remotely aware that a crisis of this scale, again, a Vietnam War's worth of deaths every year. Yeah. Nor, nor, I mean, grim and, and re- highly regrettable as the, as the urban deaths were, they weren't so uh, on such a scale as to lower the life expectancy of the They're, nation. Right. They, the, for all the, the, the changes in demographics and the changes of how we count people, if a crisis of this scale rocks Anglo America, uh, you see it in the nas- you see it in the national statistics. Even if it is not, even if uh, other demographic groups are not nearly as affected by it. Well, uh, to turn on a slightly more optimistic note, um, there may be some alternatives 
to some of the drugs that are currently uh, causing the problems. Can you tell us uh, f uh, first about uh, Kratom? So the idea, uh, one of the, the goals now of, of some medical research is to try to identify an effective painkiller that is maybe not necessarily non-addictive, but if it does addict you, you don't end up down the death spiral that a lot of opioid addict, uh, uh, that a lot of opioid addicts undergo. Uh, but that is still effective for treating pain, and ideally is effective for treating chronic pain, which opioids, the medical literature is kind of unclear on whether they're really any good at it. Um, so a couple of uh, one, a couple of uh, sort of herbal drug herbal drugs that have been that are being considered. One is is as you said, kratom, which is a a Southeast Asian originated herb that has been consumed. Uh, in that part of the world as a, as a pain reliever, as an analgesic, as probably a recreational drug. Um, the DEA has tried to ban it, uh, citing a couple of fatalities. Uh, those, de uh, those designations that the fatalities are caused by Kratom itself have been contested. It's kind of not, not clear. If you're, you read Procratum sources, they say it was other drugs. If you read uh, government sources, it was Kratom itself. We don't really know. Um, and there is some perspective, perspective medical research that suggests that it might be useful as an alternative painkiller uh, that is, quote, much less harmful than prescription opioids. Uh, now, there's a potential for a market failure here. It is a, it's a, uh, it, it's a pharmacological, pharmacologically active plant uh, that if it were legal, you could just plant and grow. Um, so it may be more difficult for pharmaceutical companies to patent and to make and to make profit on. Yeah, and we should add that the government doesn't help by the fact that uh, the typical drug working its way through the Food and Drug Administration approval process takes two billion dollars on average uh, of of costs. Before, after, if you're lucky, at the end of your $2 billion outlay, then you finally get to try to sell something. And the sad thing about, you know, potential research into Kratom is that the current FDA commissioner, a gentleman by the name of Scott Gottlieb, who used to be at the center-right think tank American Enterprise Institute, uh, is usually, has, is in kind of other areas pretty aware of that, uh, Probl of the of that problem of... The problem mm -hmm. of you know, new therapies and new generic and new generic uh, um, new generic pharmaceuticals being kind of too expensive to bring to market. Uh, now, again, we can wonder what we can wonder why this uh, in this circumstance he isn't. Is it, you know, again, conservatives are known to be ideologically averse to drugs that haven't been used in Europe for ten thousand years. Uh, you know, is there? pharmaceutical lobbying going on behind closed doors? Is the medical research actually support his position? Again, that's beyond my expertise. I don't know. Yep. Uh, in addition to the uh, to the Kratom, there's also um, uh, some put forward medical marijuana as a possible uh, help with this problem. The, th the thing about medical, about medical marijuana is it's kind of hard to say what's... Uh, what, uh, you know where where the kind of the line is is drawn, um, 
we don't really know yet whether medical cannabis or uh, the compounds in cannabis called cannabinoids could serve as an opioid substitute. Part of the reason is because doing research on it is extremely is extremely difficult because marijuana is a Schedule One drug, which means that it has no reasonable medical uses by legal definition. By, yeah, that is yeah. a that is a legal definition, not a scientific definition. Uh, now, there is some research ongoing, both in the U.S. and Israel. Um, and there's also some economics research. Now, a bunch of states have legalized uh, marijuana. Some, you know, an increasing number of Vermont did, I think, last week, um, have legalized it just as a recreational substance, which, of course, if it's a recreational substance, you can self-medicate with it, uh, or have legalized it uh, for certain medicinal reasons. And there is some evidence uh, from economics literature that the opioid fatality rate in states that have med medical marijuana is lower. Now, why might that be? Well, it might be because uh, cannabis is a good substitute for opioids and people who have chronic pain are taking cannabis instead of opioids. That would be kind of the, that would be the great, that would be the good, re the very good reason. Uh, the, the potential not so good reason, although if people are dying less, it's probably not a bad reason, uh, would be if people who are considering what recreational drug to use were found marijuana more available and were using that instead of heroin. You know, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. And I know that uh, uh, speaking of influencers who are no longer with us, but James Q. Wilson, one of the most prominent social scientists of the 20th century, and uh, the chairman of, I believe, the very first presidential commission about uh, drug abuse, um, he went to his grave not too many years ago uh, always against the uh, increased legalization of drugs, uh, arguing, among other things, that if you dramatically lower the costs of something, um, there will be more demand for it. Well, that's a, and that's a an interesting side effect of the opioid crisis specific to opioids. Uh, there have been a number of pieces. I, you know, on the on the right, David French and Robert Verbruggen. On the left, actually, uh, I forget the guy's name, but one of the writers at Vox, uh, you know, who have said, you know, we can have a debate about marijuana, but if there's one thing we've seen from the opioid crisis, it's that the legalization of hard drugs or legalization of opioid of opioids and opiates is probably not a good idea, even if you had a pre-existing pre ideological commitment that the war on drugs is bad. Yes, cause, because obviously cannabis is simply not uh, nearly as life-controlling yeah, as opiates. It is the amount of cannabis you would have to take to have an overdose is beyond that which people take on a normal basis. Whereas with opioids, the amount that, that addicts are taking on a normal basis, even before you get into the, you know, did they use carfentanil instead of fentanyl, uh, you know, can be enough to kill you. Yeah. Well, uh, we can't settle all this today, but uh, thank you so much, Mike, for uh, giving us a much deeper understanding of the influencers behind this genuine national health crisis. Uh, that's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube, and you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.